Welcome to the latest installment of the DMSO Remix Podcast. I'm your host, Eric McIntyre, and in this episode, we'll be looking at the Des Moines Symphony's upcoming program, Discover Gershwin. So from the outset, you surely get the idea that the program is going to feature the music of American composer George Gershwin. And this is completely fitting, given that the premiere of his most beloved orchestral work, Rhapsody in Blue, took place a hundred years ago this month. In addition to its immense popularity with audiences, Rhapsody in Blue has an important place in the history of American music, marked as much by its innovation and appeal as for its criticism and controversy. Typically on the DMSO Remix podcast, I like to cover all of the music on the upcoming Des Moines Symphony program, but this time around I'm going to focus primarily on the work that gives the program its title. There's simply not enough time to give adequate attention to the major works on both halves of the concert, so I won't be discussing César Franck's Symphony in D minor. That decision in no way reflects on a lack of interest. Franck's Symphony is a glorious work deserving of its own full episode. And to hear more from me about that composition, please come to my concert prelude talk before the symphony concerts on March 9th and 10th. The first half of this program includes Gershwin's masterpiece, which is well paired with the other work, Amen, a relatively new composition by American composer Carlos Simon. These two works are conceived in similar veins, so I thought I might start off with a brief overview of the melting pot that gives rise to the musical approach that we hear in both Amen and Rhapsody in Blue. When Rhapsody in Blue was premiered in 1924, it was the centerpiece of a program hosted by band leader Paul Whiteman and described as an experiment in modern music. That experiment involved a blended collection of music from the European classical tradition and American popular music, including jazz, blues, novelty songs, and ragtime. Gershwin's contribution was most significant because it was intended as a showpiece that demonstrated how jazz and popular music could be fused with classical concert music. Before we focus on how Gershwin tackled that particular challenge, it's important to look back at how jazz and other popular music of the 1920s was already an example of hybrid musical traditions. It's generally well known that jazz grew up in African-American culture in the southern United States, especially in areas like New Orleans, and that it was heavily influenced by rhythmic characteristics, melodic and harmonic elements, and vocal traditions of enslaved and formerly enslaved people whose ancestors brought some musical components of that music from Africa generations before. But it's also important to note that other key aspects of jazz came from European roots, including the most common musical instruments and dominant forms such as marches, waltzes, and cakewalks, and the foundations that underlie the colorful harmonic language of jazz. So jazz was already an example of joined traditions long before Paul Whiteman's experimental concert and Rhapsody in Blue. But those shared roots didn't mean it was easy to bring those musical styles back together, especially with an eye toward authenticity in a famous concert hall in New York in the early 20th century. Segregation was an ugly fact of life at the time, and while it was mostly black musicians who gave birth to jazz, by the mid-20s, Paul Whiteman and his band were the most popular jazz ensemble in the land. Now, some would definitely say that Whiteman's variety of jazz wasn't even jazz, as it wasn't driven by perhaps the most important component of early jazz, improvisation. 
Also at odds with the core history of jazz was the fact that Whiteman's ensemble included no black musicians. That fact alone remains one of the greatest sticking points in the acceptance of Rhapsody in Blue. Whiteman was also in a sticky position himself. He respected black musicians and was known to work with them, but segregation made it essentially impossible for him to hire black musicians. And it's probably lost on no one the odd irony of the name Whiteman being associated with an all-white jazz band. Yet he had an extraordinary reputation, and it was none other than Duke Ellington who said that, quote, Whiteman was known as the king of jazz, and no one as yet has come near carrying that title with more certainty and dignity. When Whiteman decided to embark on his journey of an experiment in modern music, he also took a bold risk by putting the heaviest burden on the 25-year-old George Gershwin, and even did that in a kind of sneaky, roundabout way. When he initially approached Gershwin about his idea for a concerto for piano and jazz orchestra, Gershwin was swamped with another project and wouldn't commit. But later, George's brother Ira stumbled across an article in the New York Times announcing that Whiteman's big concert, only six weeks away, would feature the premiere of a new composition by George Gershwin. This public arm-twisting worked, and Gershwin agreed to write the spotlight composition for the program. And as I said, this was a risky choice. Gershwin was a brilliant young composer of songs and theater music. But he was not a luminary of jazz, nor was he a respected classical composer. So maybe he had the potential to draw together styles with a degree of observational distance, but it might also be an opportunity to have the worst of both worlds. And Gershwin set to work right away on the work. He claimed that the greatest stroke of inspiration arrived while he was on a train to Boston surrounded by its mechanical rhythms and noise. When the night of the premiere arrived, it was quite the event. Attendees included some of the greatest musical figures of the era, like composer John Philip Sousa, Igor Stravinsky, Sergei Rachmaninoff, and Victor Herbert, conductors Leopold Stokowski and Walter Damrosch, and violinist Yasha Heifetz and Fritz Kreisler. Gershwin was making his debut both as piano soloist and as a composer of so-called serious music. And the concert was a triumph, and Rhapsody in Blue remains an audience favorite a century later. And it did set a standard for future generations of musicians who would seek ways of bringing together orchestral concert music and popular styles. In 1957, composer Gunther Schuller would coin the term third stream for music that was a fusion of jazz and classical, although he would raise the bar somewhat and elevate the role of improvisation. That same year, Leonard Bernstein's Music for West Side Story featured extensive numbers that brought together choppy jazz riffs and harmony with exquisite symphonic writing. Many, many other composers have continued what Whiteman called his experiment, and those explorations continue to the present day. And that brings us to the opening work on the upcoming Des Moines Symphony Concert, Carlos Simon's Amen. Amen was originally conceived as a work for symphonic band and later adapted for symphony orchestra. It's yet another example of a score that draws inspiration from black musical traditions and fuses them with elements of European symphonic concert music. In this case, the inspiration comes from the music of the African-American Pentecostal church in which the composer was raised. 
Simon describes how he sought to capture the joyous exuberance and spontaneity of a church service. To that end, he employs elements of vocal music, including quotations of a gospel song and the call-and-response textures common to this church tradition. He also captures the sounds of choirs singing with the prominent use of trombones in harmony with exaggerated vibrato, like here at the very opening. This is not George Gershwin's soundscape. Amen is clearly a product of the 21st century, most notably because of the emphasis on orchestrational color over the dominance of melody. Yes, there are passages that include longer melodic lines, but most of the score is punchier and driven by riffs and grooves. A listener is more likely to walk away from this music with a feeling than with a tune stuck in the head. This is an important part of the ethos of many 21st century orchestral works. The overall impact and a dazzling array of instrumental color are the driving forces. Take, for example, this passage in the third section of Amen. Now this merging of styles is proof that the spirit of Rhapsody in Blue is alive and thriving today. But I haven't actually discussed the sounds in Gershwin's score and how he navigated the task of composing a concerto for piano and jazz band. First off, it's essential to note that Gershwin did not write Rhapsody in Blue for jazz band. He composed a score for piano. Then Fair Grofet, the composer perhaps most well-known for his Grand Canyon Suite, orchestrated it for Whiteman's ensemble of 23 players. He also made later orchestrations, including the 1942 version for symphony orchestra that we usually hear today. It cannot be stated enough that a significant amount of the credit for the success of Rhapsody in Blue should go to Fared Grofet and his orchestrations. So what makes Rhapsody in Blue a piece of classical music? The format itself is a product of the European tradition. A solo pianist matched with a large ensemble in a shared give-and-take relationship. The music for the ensemble is all notated. 
Occasionally, players may improvise personal ornaments, but they generally play what's on the page and are led by a conductor who keeps rigid time between the players. Some piano soloists introduce elements of improvisation, but Gershwin's score for the soloist is clearly notated as well. Well, I should note that Gershwin improvised portions of the piano part at the premiere, but this was probably because he was more pressed for time and hadn't yet written it all out. In this case, he was in good historical company. There are plenty of instances where Mozart, Beethoven, and other composers found themselves in a time crunch and improvised piano parts for premieres. Suffice it to say, though, Rhapsody in Blue does not call for improvisation. Also, the score does not call on players to swing rhythms. The rhythms are precisely notated, and again, players play what they see on the page. So, what aspects of jazz and other 20th century popular music do we hear in Gershwin's score? The first and perhaps most obvious thing is the pitch material, that is, the harmony and the scales that are heard throughout in the melodies. Gershwin makes extensive use of the so-called blues scale, whose combination of pitches include blue notes, or notes that seem outside the familiar major and minor scales so common in European classical music. And the chords, the harmony in Rhapsody in Blue, is likewise colorful, with more extensive use of dissonances that don't necessarily resolve as they do in the classical language. The rhythm is also often syncopated, with the emphasis falling off the strong beats rather than lining up with them. Take for example the primary melody from the beginning. It starts with heavier emphasis on each beat, but the latter half of the melody has stronger accents that work against the established beat. This is a rhythmic characteristic that defined ragtime music, that term ragtime being derived from the ragged or syncopated rhythms that were essential to that style. Gershwin also used textures from jazz and ragtime music in related styles like stride piano. Stride was a style first created by pianists like James P. Johnson that featured wide leaps in the accompanying left hand. Here's an example of Johnson playing in the stride style. That stomping style of the left hand is featured prominently in Rhapsody in Blue. Grofe's orchestration also includes familiar jazz sounds that were uncommon in orchestra scores of the time, including instruments like saxophones and banjo, and effects like the wah-wah created by opening and closing the hand over a harmon mute in a trumpet.
And of course, one of the most memorable moments in the whole score is the opening clarinet solo with this distinctive jazzy glissando. Gershwin had originally written this passage as a straightforward scale. Remember, he wrote the score for piano, an instrument that only has 12 notes per octave and no notes between keys. Here's what it sounded like when he recorded it on a piano roll. During one of the rehearsals for the premiere, a clarinetist decided to have a bit of fun by playing a glissando at the top of the run, and Gershwin said to keep it in for the performance. It's been played that way ever since. Earlier, I referred to the controversy and the criticisms that still swirl around Rhapsody in Blue. Over the last couple of months, I've noticed my online news feed has included a not-so-insignificant number of articles and op-eds about the 100th anniversary of the premiere of Rhapsody in Blue and its legacy in the current age. It seems that people still have a lot to say about this work. Much of the criticism appears to focus on two main issues. The first relates to the racial issues I touched on previously. The second relates to whether or not Rhapsody in Blue is actually a good piece of music. In the case of the former criticism, the harshest are those who claim that Whiteman, Gershwin, Grofe, and others stole black music. I'll suggest that such a claim is at the least hyperbolic. Is there a history of white musicians, record producers, and composers making money off music by black composers who were often not compensated at all? Absolutely. This was a huge problem throughout the history of popular music in the 20th century. But Rhapsody in Blue was all original music by Gershwin. His use of jazz elements was a gesture of love towards styles that he appreciated. Composers and performers have been drawing on each other's styles and ideas forever. It would be absurd to claim that early jazz musicians stole the marches and cakewalks that served as the basis of so many standard tunes. They took what they liked, built on it, and created something new. Gershwin did the same. And to see how his work contributed to the development of the art, we need look no further than the extraordinary array of subsequent jazz masters who have used Rhapsody in Blue and other Gershwin works as foundations for their own innovative work over the last century. So now we're left with the most stinging criticism, that Rhapsody in Blue isn't a good composition. We shouldn't be so shocked by this. Really, name any major work in the orchestral repertoire and I'll find plenty of naysayers who claim it's a dud. And yes, that includes all the biggest hits by Mozart and Brahms and even Beethoven's Ninth. But what is it specifically about Rhapsody in Blue? Most complaints center on its formal structure and lack of sophisticated development. As for development, folks have a point. Rather than play with motives in clever ways and really mine the possibilities of his central ideas, Gershwin tends to just repeat them. For a work of classical concert music, this lack of development would often be seen as a missed opportunity. 
And regarding the formal structure of Rhapsody in Blue, it too might be kind of clunky compared to the great works of many great composers. It tends to come across rather as a string of ideas that come and go without careful crafting or a sense of inevitable progression. In a 1955 Atlantic Monthly article, Leonard Bernstein described how one could cut, paste, and reorder entire sections of the score with no harm done. These musical criticisms are entirely valid, especially if we approach Rhapsody in Blue as a regular piece of concert music. But it's not. For one, it's worth pointing out that Gershwin kind of insulates himself from complaints about form by titling his score a Rhapsody. The word Rhapsody comes from the Greek rhapsodos, meaning one who stitches or strings songs together. Yep, that's what Gershwin did. And let's remember that this work was composed as the centerpiece of a program titled An Experiment in Modern Music. It was an experiment by a composer with a unique grasp of popular styles and enough familiarity with the European concert tradition to pull it off. And that he did. Audiences have been loving it for a hundred years and it's still a top crowd pleaser. Why? It's fun. It really shows off the piano soloist. And then there's that reason that Paul Whiteman tapped George Gershwin for the gig. The guy could write a tune. He delivered on that in magnificent style. In a recent article by banjo virtuoso Bella Fleck, he provides a defense of Rhapsody in Blue that includes the question, how many works that we have agreed are great have this many unforgettable melodies? I'll answer that. Not many. Not many at all. This brings us to the conclusion for this installment of the DMSO Remix Podcast. I'm your host, Eric McIntyre, and I hope to see you at the Des Moines Civic Center on March 9th and 10th. Plan to arrive 45 minutes before the concert and join me for the concert prelude talk, where I'll discuss even more about the music on this program. It's sure to be a wonderful experience, as the Des Moines Symphony Orchestra and maestro Joseph Junta invite you to Discover Gershwin. <laughs>